We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus every Sunday. This is why the church moved from traditionally gathering on the Sabbath, which was Saturday, the seventh day of the week, to Sunday, the first day of the week. So we are perpetually celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Sunday by Sunday by Sunday, the first day of the week. But on this specific Resurrection Sunday, we are here to honor Jesus Christ, the risen one, the first fruits of all those who will rise from the dead. Tonight, we're going to do a quick look at the resurrection from 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 22. I'm going to read the whole text, and then we're going to go verse by verse, line by line. We'll stop here and there to make observations. But my hope is that each of you would have your hearts warmed and your affections rise for Jesus, and you would see your place as united to him in his life, death, burial, and resurrection now filled with his Holy Spirit, empowered and enabled to go out and to live the Christian life, to live the revealed will of God. Let's read 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 22 together. Paul is arguing to the Corinthians, and what has happened here is they have written him a letter. The Apostle Paul was uh, a Christian hater, killer, hunting down what was then called the way, a sect of Judaism at the time. And Jesus, the risen Christ, the Lord of glory, the creator himself, showed up to Paul really, not in a vision, but really, physically, actually risen, knocks Paul off of his horse as he's on his way to imprison Christians. And Paul says, who are you, Lord, at the time Saul of Tarsus? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And instantly Paul is born again, regenerate, transformed, and within what would seem days, he is preaching the gospel that he once tried to destroy. He makes his way into Corinth in Acts chapter 18, and he starts to preach the gospel, which he does in every Gentile city. They believe, and a church is planted. And they write Paul a letter, their church planting pastor, who's gone on to plant other churches. And as a response to their writing him a letter with a bunch of questions, he writes 1 Corinthians. And in 7.1, he says this, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and then he addresses what they wrote. We can assume here that in 15, Paul is addressing their questions about the resurrection of the dead. And that's the context. Let's read it together. Now, if Christ is pro proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? They probably said that in the letter that they sent him. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, but by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ 
shall all be made alive. It's good news. This is good gospel news. Let's look at verse 12. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Now, if you know your ancient, you know, first century geography, Corinth is right across the way from Greece, Athens, the center of Greek philosophy. And within Greek philosophy, it was commonly held that spirit, the whole spirit realm, antimatter is good and holy and righteous. But matter, physicalness, is evil, and it contains the evil. And the Corinthians, surely being captivated by Greek philosophy because they were a, a Greek-cultured center, they would have had this dualistic idea in their head of spirit good, matter or physicalness bad. And so when the preaching of the resurrection of a physical body came into their minds, immediately it blew up what they knew as true and good. And so what Paul has said to them is, hey, Jesus not only died for your sins, and he was raised not a spirit being, not like an angel, not like Jesus was before he came incarnate in flesh, but he has risen physically. Now listen to this, friends. Where is Jesus right now? I want you to think about this in your mind. Where is Jesus Christ right now, this moment? Don't answer out loud. And what form is he? What I mean by that is, before Jesus, the creator, Colossians 1, John 1, and Hebrews 1 tells us Jesus is the creator, the creator becomes his creation, the all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere-at-once spirit becomes localized in flesh. As it's been said, he became what he was not. Creator become creation. And listen, when he raised from the dead, he kept his incarnate body. And when the apostles and the 120 saw him go up in Acts chapter 1 into heaven 40 days after his resurrection, did he keep his earthly, physical, Jewish, 30-ish year old body? Or did he transform, metamorphosize into some spirit, angel-like body. What do you think? Jesus Christ kept his physical human body with blood and veins and a heart pumping, and he is in wherever heaven is right now as a male incarnate Jewish man forever. Forever dignifying our humanity and the goodness of matter, physicalness. Is that good news or is that bad news to you? It should be good news to you because that is great hope because later, as we're going to see, Jesus is the first fruits of all who are going to be raised, you and I. And what Paul is saying to these Corinthians is, listen, guys, let's, let's do some arguing, arguing here. You guys like logic? You like to build arguments? All right, let's do some of that. And he says, if Christ is proclaimed, preached, given a message, if he's proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? Now, we know this was a common problem when Paul preached to Greek-cultured churches because the same thing happened when he went to the capital of Greece called Athens. Athens. 
Athens was the center of Greek philosophy, the home of Aristotle, Plato, and Socrates. Steeped in this Greek thought, Paul preaches the resurrection of the dead. I want to read that to you very quickly. Paul, preaching the resurrection, Stoic philosophers, Epicurean philosophers hear him, and they're like, this babbler is preaching some foreign deities. We want to hear him more on this. So they bring him into the center of where there would be spoken lectures, and he has a chance now to speak the gospel. And Paul is in the capital city, and we break in in Acts 17 this way. Now, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, it's like a a stadium for speaking, said, men of Athens, and he begins to preach. And listen when he gets to the resurrection. I'm going to start reading now in 1730. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That means to turn. Turn from your former ideas. Turn from your sin. Turn from yourself. Turn from your idols. Turn from your idolatry. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. We know that to be Jesus. Now listen to this. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So you can hear the mocking like, oh, okay, resurrection of the dead. I'm out of here. And this we can assume is exactly what some of these Corinthians were thinking. Now, when Paul first came to Corinth and preached the gospel, he preached the resurrection of the dead because when you preach the gospel, you have to preach the resurrection of the dead. You don't have the gospel unless you have the perfect life of Jesus, the substitutionary death of Jesus in place of ruined sinners, and then showing that Jesus was vindicated and God was pleased with his life death as a substitute. God raised him from the grave. So we know that Paul did preach the resurrection to the Corinthians. So what we think is, he, they probably had a problem with themselves rising from the grave. Yeah, Jesus rose, but this whole thing about everybody rising physically and the earth being recreated, I mean, that's, that's inconsistent. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then, now he's going to say, so let's do some arguing. If this, then this. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Now this word vain means empty and without substance. Empty and without substance. So think about this. He's preaching and he's saying, if the dead are not raised, then our preaching is empty. It's without substance. How many of you died eggs for Easter? Come on, it's not unchristian to die eggs. Yeah, that's what I thought. You're like, I don't want to think I'm a pagan. Come on, dying eggs is fun. More hands are going up. Okay, are we going to repent together for dying eggs? What's going on here? I died eggs. Come on. All right, good. So let's imagine you got your eggs and you opened up the container and there was no eggs. You see, you would have a vain carton of eggs because it was just a container that was empty, full of nothing. 
Paul is saying that his gospel proclamation, when you open up the container of that gospel, would be empty. There's no substance. There's nothing there if there is no resurrection. Our preaching was in vain. Our message that we came with such power and authority that you believed, empty. There's nothing in it. Verse 15, we, pointing to the other apostles in verse 11, which we didn't read, we are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because, here's why, we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. So now his argument is, look, if Christ isn't raised and the dead aren't raised, then we are misrepresenting God. Right here. We're misrepresenting God because we keep saying in city after city that God did indeed raise Jesus from the dead. And if the dead aren't raised, then we are misrepresenting God. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus is essential to your living forever. If there's no resurrection, we are without hope. I don't know about you, but I have based my whole life, my waking hours, my sleeping hours, my eternity on this being true. I'm not committed to an idea, friends. I'm committed to a reality that happened historically, and Paul is saying here, if this didn't happen, if this is just an idea, if this is a religious thing that we do for fun or to make ourselves feel good, we have no hope. And I want you to know that for we who are Christians, we believe this is true, that God the Father really woke Jesus up from the dead. He unlocked death's door, walked out alive, and he is still alive in heaven right now as I'm speaking. He's alive. And the idea here is, if it's not true, your faith is futile. You know what that word means? That word means pointless, vain, empty, no purpose. What are you even doing here? If this isn't true, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? But it is true. And Jesus did rise from the dead. Therefore, our faith, you know what faith means? Faith means trust. You place all of your weight on this being true. That's what faith is. Faith is neutral, but its object is crucial, friends. Muslims have faith. Buddhists have faith. Hindus have faith. Atheists have faith. They believe that they're right about there being no God. That's a trust. They have faith. But friends, our faith has an object, and the object is Jesus Christ, him crucified, risen from the grave in our place. That's the object of our faith. Faith is neutral. Its object is crucial. Faith is not a force. Faith is not a power that we tap into. Faith is objective. It has to have something to land on. When you shoot an arrow, it has to smack a target, or it's just going into the air or hitting a hillside. Faith lands in Christ's crucified, risen from the grave. And if it's not true, your faith is in vain, your trust is aimless. You get it? That's what Paul's saying here. Then there's an implication. Verse 
18. I'm sorry. You're still in your sins. I want to stop there. Do you realize that we experience all our waking moments with indwelling sin? Romans 7 tells us. So the reason you get depressed, the reason you get anxious, the reason you get worried, the reason you do the things that you don't want to do and you can't do the things that you really want to do, it's because you have sin permeating through you. It's called indwelling sin, even as a Christian. Listen, Christians are nothing more than people in desperate need of change helping people in need of change. Christians are not better than other people necessarily. You realize that, right? Because Jesus said, I didn't come, I didn't come for the healthy. It's the sick who need a doctor. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's why some of you keep bumping into Christians and you're like, you're not very Christian. See, here's the problem. You may not have an understanding that Jesus came to seek and save the lost, not the found. We as Christians do sin less when we become Christians, but we're not sinless. Is that your story? It's mine. And every time I sin, I thank God the Holy Spirit smashes me and says, you got to do better. You look, you're forgiven, but you got to do better. You got to do better. Get up, dust yourself off, keep going, confess it to someone else so they can hold you accountable and let's keep moving on. Stop hiding in the darkness. Friends, some of you can't kill the sin that's permeating through your life because you're hiding it because you think you're more righteous if you hide it than if you expose it. And the truth is, if you will expose it, you will actually gain some victory and some power in this Christian life. But if you want to hide it so you look good, so that others think you're better than you are, so that you think you want others to think you're more put together than you actually are, you're hurting yourself. The best thing you can do is realize that Jesus came for the broken, not the put together. And if he came for the broken, of which I am, and I pray you would put your hand up and say, I am, then we can tell other people, hey, we're broken and we're not okay with it and we want to get better. No one loves to be laid out sick in bed visiting the toilet every five minutes. Right? You love that? You're like, oh, please, God, tomorrow. Please. No, when we're sick, we want to get better. We're like, uh, MedExpress, even though that's a $100 copay, it's worth it. Okay? We Christians are still sick, but we want to get better. Yes? Yeah. Okay, good. You're still in your sins, but here's the deal, friends. We as Christians are not still in our sins. Now, here's the paradox. Because wait a minute, didn't you just say you're, you're, you're permeated with sin? Yes. But see, the gospel's paradoxical, meaning it's a seeming contradiction. Jesus Christ was sinless. The sinless human being, the only one to ever exist. And when we as sinful creatures come to him and embrace him, his perfect life becomes our perfect life. And we are no longer still in our sins because we are in Christ. You see the difference? It's a location thing. You're located right now in this room. And if you're not in Christ, you are located in your sins, in your first father, Adam. But see, we who are Christians have been taken outside of Adam in sin and been put in Christ. And now everything that's true of him, friends, is true of you. 
everything that's true of him, his shamelessness, his guiltless, his purity, his power, it's yours. So at the same time, we are sinners and we are righteous. But you know what? We will become who God says we are, and God says we are righteous in Christ. And one day, friends, when we are resurrected, sin will be no more. He's going to banish it from you and I and from the entire universe. The great day when sin will be banished. This resurrection is a first fruit of that great reality that's coming. Verse 18, for those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So look at verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Notice the in Christ, the location that we just talked about. You're in Christ. If Christ has not been raised, then the fallen asleep, that's a Bible way of saying Christians who die. You remember Jesus uh, in John was going to see his friend Lazarus because Lazarus was sick. You guys remember that story? And Lazarus in John chapter 11, verse 11, has died. And Jesus, in response to his death, says this, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go awake him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. We know the story, right? Jesus shows up to Lazarus' grave. It's four days. He's decaying by this time. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man is awakened. And his heart starts pumping and his brain starts firing and his eyes start twitching. And he comes alive. Why? Because the creator and author of life called life. He unlocked death's door and said, come out. And Lazarus came out. But see, the point here is, if there is no resurrection, then all of our dead Christian friends, family members, there's no hope for them. They're gone. No more seeing them ever again. And for many of us, our great hope is we have a lot of friends and family who have fallen asleep. But we know that they're not gone. Because the great hope of the resurrection is not only will they be resurrect, but I will be resurrect. Physically to hug and to slap on the back and to kick soccer balls around with. And I can't wait for the heavenly dark roast. Oh my gosh. To kick it with you guys at the coffee shop in heaven. It's going to be awesome. And I, don't think that's so far off from the truth. Don't, don't think that. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, verse 19, we of all people are to be most pitied. Now, what does he mean there? What he means there is if we, the apostles that he was speaking of in verse 11, and myself, Paul, if we have only in this life to be hopeful, then we are of all people to be most pitied. Why? Because I feel Paul on this. Maybe some of you can't feel them on this. You're like, why? This life's great. It is great. But listen, if you understand even an appetizer, even a preview of what God has in store for those who believe him and trust in him and rest in him, this life is a dark, shadowy, ugly place. And listen, for some of you, this is the heaven that you're going to get. This is all the heaven you're going to get. 
flip on the news, see how bad it is, and this is the only heaven you're going to see. But listen, it doesn't have to be that, friends. You can have an eternity with God where there is no bad news, where there is no more pain, no more surgeries, no more cancer, no more putting our animals to sleep. None of that. Life. Life. And uh, for you animal lovers, R.C. Sproul does think the pets will be resurrected, so you take that up with him when you get there, if you don't believe that. But I like to stand with Sproul on that. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18 says this. Now listen, this is your key to understanding what he means when he says, your faith is futile, and we of all people are to be most pities. We, we who believe this. Ready? Even though our outer person is being destroyed. Any of you feel that? Like, my daughter has the energy of 20 Red Bulls. <laughs> Until she goes to bed. And, and I'm exhausted looking at her like, oh my gosh, if I could have one of your Red Bulls. This would be a great life, right? And for some of us, you know what it's like to be at work and all of a sudden your back stiffens up and you're like, oh my gosh, do I need to go to surgery or am I going to be okay? Right? You know what it's like to wake up in the middle of the night and your tooth hurts so bad you can't sleep. This is what Paul is saying here to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4.16 when he says, even though our outer person is being destroyed, you have an inner person and you have an outer person. Don't be so surprised when your outer person is being destroyed day by day. Anyone feel the destruction? Yeah, when you're like six years old, you're like, this is awesome. You know, you can slam onto the floor with your knees and slide about six feet, hop back up, and you're like, this is great. So let's see you at 30 or 40 go running across this floor, hit your knees and slide about six feet and hop up and be like, that was fantastic. But that's what I used to do when I was in like first grade. I did it so much that the, I ripped holes in my pants and my mom kept saying, stop sliding on your knees so much. Our outer person is being destroyed. But listen, our inner person, the you that will last forever to be clothed with a new body, that person is being renewed day by day. Friends, this is the Christian life, to be renewed day by day. And then Paul says, for our momentary light affliction, the being destroyed part, is producing for us. It's doing something. It's not in vain. It's purposeful. What's it purposeful for? For us, an absolutely incomparable weight of glory. Glory in the Old Testament literally means weight. God is glorious. His glory, he's weighty. And listen, for us who are Christians, there is coming for us weighty glory beyond what this life can give you. You've been to some Caribbean islands. It's amazing. It's weighty. You've been in the air and looked down at the buildings and, and been like, is that a car? Is that a building? What is that? And you feel small and you feel the weight of being in the air. But then you realize that we're in a Milky Way galaxy containing billions of stars the size of our sun and larger. And then you realize, oh my gosh, there are billions of galaxies, each themselves containing billions of suns. And every time we build a bigger telescope, the universe gets bigger and bigger. 
And friends, you don't think the universe is going to be our playground forever? Why all that space if not? That's my question. What are we going to do forever? Well, Star Wars without the war. It's going to be awesome. I'm not kidding. Although I would like to have a blaster and a lightsaber. Wouldn't that be cool? Maybe I could use it for watermelon. What's that, Fruit Ninja? Anyway, so we do not, listen, here, here's the key. So here's what you do, verse 18. So we do not focus on, we do not focus on what is seen. Look around. Look at your hands. Look at your spouse. Look at your kids. We do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You see, there's an unseen reality to the world happening right now, and it is eternal. But here's the deal. Everything you see right now is going to perish. All of it. All the money. All the... It's all going to perish. But our hope is not here and now and in what we can accumulate and in our bodies and in our health. It's not our hope. Our hope is the coming unseen, but it will be seen. And listen, the word focus means this. Look at intently, inspect, fix your eyes upon. Let me read it again. We do not focus on what is seen. So maybe you're like, why am I so messed up? Are you focusing on what is seen? If you are, expect to be disappointed and depressed and down. Paul's saying to you, he's giving you a gift. He's saying, don't put your focus on the seen. Put it on the unseen and you won't be down. You won't be depressed. You won't be discouraged. Why? Because there is coming for you weighty glory forever. That's hard to do, isn't it? If only we could just hear it and say, yep, I'm going to do that now. And I'm just going to not stop doing that. No, we have to beg God for help to not focus on the scene because it feels so real. You know why? Because it is real. But so is the unseen realities. It's just as real, if not more real. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Now we're getting to the good news. See, he has been raised and he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Again, there's that fallen asleep, died. And the first fruits in the Old Testament were the first incomings of the harvest when they harvested all of the, the agriculture. And so Jesus is the first fruit of those who are coming after him, us, our friends and family in Christ who have fallen asleep. He's the first fruits, we're coming after him. Listen, friends, we too one day will rise physically with Jesus to live forever. And, and here's the deal. There is so many of us who are so discouraged in life because there's so much we want to do, so much we want to accomplish, so much I want to read. Like if I could just sleep at the library, it would be awesome. But why? What, what happens? Well, life is so complicated. It's so busy. There's not enough time. There's not enough resources. And we get so discouraged when we look at Facebook and we're like, why does she get to go there? And why does he get to meet with her? And why... Not me, and we get all jealous, but friends, you don't understand that you have forever to do these things. You do realize that. We're going to a physical universe where there will be art and music and travel and all that you want now but can't have, but better, better. So I believe this so much so that I've given up purposefully 
many things that I would love to be doing, and I've devoted my time almost strictly to the kingdom of God because I believe I'm going to have forever to do the things that I've given up. And I expect God to give me some weighty glory. That's what it said that I just read. And you know what? I can get discouraged like, oh, I don't get to do this and I don't get to do that and I don't get to do this and I don't get to do that. And, or I could say, you know what? I'm going to have forever to do that. Can you have that mindset? You can if God will give it to you. How's God going to give it to you? You have not because you ask not. Ask him. Ask him for help to look past the here and now and even the way you feel. Because we think through our feelings as 21st century Americans. Our feelings tell us reality, and our feelings are liars. The Bible tells us the truth. It's the word of God to be trusted and built your life upon, not your feelings. Your feelings will crash you into the ground every time, almost every time. Sometimes they're right, 95% wrong. Is that fair? 90% wrong? Yeah, thumbs up. All right, good. Let's finish. Verse 21. This is gospel clarity, friends. Verse 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, that would be Adam, our first parents. By a man has also come the resurrection of the dead, Jesus, the second Adam. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Notice the two alls. All human beings born after him, born of the seed of the man, born with a sin nature, born sinning because you have a symptom. I'm sorry, it's a symptom of of a disease called sin. But see, there's another all. All in Christ will be made alive, resurrected, to live forever, physically, on a new earth, without the curse. Now, friends, let's just think of your favorite food right now. Where's your favorite? What is your favorite food? I love Trader... What? Popsicles? Okay. Anyone else want to holler? (laughs) Hot dogs? All right. Must be Nathan's, right? I hope Nathan's. Pizza. I love love me some pizza. Lasagna? I love lasagna. A lot of Italians in the room tonight. Mac and cheese. Yes. Chicken. Absolutely. I have a chicken breast tattooed on my arm right here. Okay, that's enough. I love... I love, I love Trader Joe's mangoes, the dried ones. They taste like fruit roll-ups. And when I was a kid, my mom used to feed me fruit roll-ups like that's the only thing we had in the cupboard. And so when I eat Trader Joe's dried mangoes, I think of my childhood and it's awesome. Okay? What's the mangoes going to taste like in an uncursed soil on an uncursed mango tree? What's uncursed macaroni and cheese going to taste like? What is uncursed pizza going to taste like? Friends, you realize the best of the best that we have now is broken and cursed. You realize that. The best things in your life are broken and cursed, and we're headed to a place where there's no more curse and there's no more brokenness. Jesus has been raised as the first fruits of all that we're talking about. And listen, here's the question for verse 21 and 22. Are you right now in Adam? Because look what happens. For as in Adam, all die. Now we are going to die physically. That's guaranteed. It's going to get everyone. It's going to get me. Don't be surprised when it comes for you. But your hope is even in physical death, you can be resurrected and made alive. So also in Christ shall all who are in Christ be made alive. 
Friends, do you want all that we've been talking about tonight? You'd be a fool to not. And I haven't told you the bad news about the justice of God that will also be served. You see, we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And God is just, holy, and righteous, and he has to punish sin, or he's not just, holy, righteous, and good. And so, you will pay for your sin, unless Jesus does. Someone's got to pay, because God is just. A good judge never lets the guilty go free. He always gives right and proper justice. A judge that let your sister's murderer go free because he said he was a good judge would not be a good judge and you would be outraged. So let's imagine the judge of all the earth, the perfect judge, letting sinful people go free unpunished. Can't happen. So either you will pay for your sin or the good news is Jesus already went to the cross for the sins of all those who would ever trust in him. Will you be one of those ones who trust in Jesus and have your sins paid for? The warning of John 3.36 is whoever does not believe is condemned already and the wrath of God remains on them. That's the bad news. But the good news is those in Christ, the wrath has landed on Jesus and there's no more wrath for us. We're going to sing that song after we take communion. It's that the wrath of God is completely satisfied. Completely, 100%. You can wake up every morning and say, there is no condemnation for me. Why? Because I'm in Christ. Will you make that choice tonight, friends? Will you choose Jesus? Will you choose the forgiveness of sins placed on him? Or will you continue to store up wrath for yourself for the day of judgment? Because there is coming a day of judgment. And I would be doing a terrible injustice to you to not tell you about it. And so my, my plea with you tonight is turn from your sin and turn to him. Turn to Jesus and be forgiven, and he will forgive you. He will embrace you with open arms. He is a loving Savior. God crushed Jesus in our place, and he proved that he was pleased with Jesus being crushed by raising, crushed by raising him from the dead for us. Let's place our trust in Jesus, and our faith will not be in vain.